Good morning, everyone. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Dear Father, make it our desire to be peacemakers in this broken and divided world. Help us to yearn for unity. It is an important week this week as we vote for those who will represent us. Thank you that we live in a country where we have the opportunity to participate in those decisions. And no matter the outcome, remind us that you are already on the throne. Jesus has won the victory, and we have life eternal because of the cross. We are all safe in your mighty and capable hands. Let us take a moment to pray that truth. So today, next week, next year, in our homes, communities, and workplaces, let us carry that truth with us and share your love with those we communicate with. In your name, amen. Our scripture reading to prepare us for today's sermon is 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. It is a wonderful word on what Sean will be preaching on today which is moving from sorrow to joy. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, It will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Well, we've been walking through the upper room discourse in John. And uh, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus calls the paraclete. And now, as we get close to the end of the discourse, Jesus will spend considerable time talking about the gifts, two particular gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us, joy and peace. Today, we'll explore joy. If you remember, Jesus has shared a little bit about joy already in the discourse. He said that if we abide in him, if we abide as a branch abides in the vine, we will have a fullness of joy. So, do you have that joy down in your heart this morning? At the end of my sermon today, we'll have a time of body life, so you can share about your joy. 
Uh, Body life is a great tradition we have at our church, but we haven't done it since before the pandemic because of the pandemic. So, um, so I invite you to think about that as I share today. And the guiding question will be, where has the Spirit brought joy into your life? Maybe even in the midst of sorrow. So let me pray. Well, Father, as we come to your text today, we ask that through your spirit you would grow roots downward in us so that fruit may bear upwards in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you into our text today, John 16, beginning in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) This has to be the most amusing text in the gospel. The disciples are completely confused about what Jesus is saying, and particularly his little phrase, a little while. It's just one word in the Greek. How will Jesus be gone for a little while and then reappear in a little while? And it seems they're whispering this question amongst themselves without asking Jesus, and then they throw their hands up in, kind of like in despair. We don't know what he's talking about. And I gotta say, as I was studying this week, I, I found myself wondering, why, why does John record this text for us? <laughs> why did he put this in his gospel? And I came to the conclusion he recorded it to show us the reality of life sometimes along the Jesus way. Following Jesus can sometimes lead us into spaces of confusion, spaces of disorientation. I know I've been there. I've thrown my hands up in discouragement many times over over, um, difficult truths or painful circumstances or my own brokenness. The truth is that the Christian life is a journey. And God is continually working on us, forming us, teaching us, transforming us. But it's a slow process. Almost nothing in the Christian life happens quickly. And so I think John wants us to to say it's okay if sometimes we're confused like these disciples. God's way is, is the patient way, the slow way. But he'll never give up on us. He'll never give up on us no matter how confused we are. So we trust God, the great vine dresser, And we never forget that the grapevine dresser is never closer to the branch as when he is pruning it. Remember that? He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That's a promise. Verse 19. 
And this section of text is where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. What wonderful words from Jesus. Well, Jesus now addresses their confusion. Their confusion over his leaving in a little while. And this leaving will cause them to weep and lament, but at the same time, the world will rejoice. So what's he talking about here? The crucifixion. The crucifixion. As, as, and as I was looking at this text this week, I kept being reminded of that scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've seen the movie. But in the death of Aslan, you remember the, all those creatures that follow the white witch, and they, they're all celebrating and rejoicing. That, that scene's always stuck with me, but according to this text, they got it right in the movie. In just a few hours from now, the world will rejoice over the death of Jesus, while the disciples will weep and mourn. Those words are used often in the Old Testament for the death of someone. But then Jesus shifts emphatically. The disciples' sorrow will not last long. It will be turned into joy. So what will cause that turn? The resurrection. The resurrection. In only a little while, the disciples' despair will be transformed into joyous jubilation when they see each other again. And Jesus illustrates this through the example of a woman giving birth, which means I'm not the one that should be teaching right now. <laughs> Childbearing, the very thing that brings pain and anguish to a woman, also brings joy. When the woman's hour has come, now you remember, hour in John has been used the whole way through the gospel as the hour of the crucifixion. And here Jesus says, when the woman's hour has come, the pain and anguish is real and intense. But once the child arrives, the pain transforms to joy. At least I've been told. Now it's not to say that the woman or these disciples will never have sorrow again. It's simply to understand the nature of true joy. See, the joy Jesus gives through the Spirit is untouchable by the happenings of life. It's an indestructible joy. It's a permanent joy because the presence of Jesus is 
permanent through the Spirit. The joy Jesus gives transcends circumstances as we abide in him and obey him. And deep joy, as many of you know, goes through pain and sorrow and suffering. From sorrow to joy. So what is joy? Well, it's a settled state of contentment thanksgiving, and hope, knowing that God is in control. So when we keep the perspective that Jesus is on the throne of the universe, we can be joyful, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering. I know this is hard stuff. And this is why Karl Barth defined joy as a defiant nevertheless. A defiant nevertheless. Nevertheless, there is a God, a living God. Nevertheless, this God is good and loving and faithful. Nevertheless, this God is involved in our lives. Nevertheless, this God and Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. Nevertheless, Jesus has risen from the grave and now sits on the throne of the universe. A defiant nevertheless. I'm confused about many things these days. Nevertheless, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. My person may not win the election this week. Nevertheless, Jesus is on the throne of the universe. A good friend of mine just passed last week. Nevertheless, I know that death has done all it can do to her. And Jesus has the last word. Joy is a defiant nevertheless and a wonderful gift from the Spirit. Now for those first disciples, Jesus was heading to the cross in only a few hours, causing them great pain and sorrow. And in three days, they will have a joyous reunion with him, the risen Jesus. That'll be the world's most significant reunion ever. But what about us? What about us? What does this text hold for us 2,000 years later after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost? What about us? Well, I think John, through the Spirit, also wants us to see the things that are to come. Remember that from last week's text? So I think there's a hint here in, in the second coming. Jesus goes away physically in the ascension, but he will see us again, and that's a promise. And our hearts will truly rejoice and no one will ever take that joy away from us. That's the joy of the new creation. That's true and perfect 
joy. Meanwhile, though, in this in-between time, that true joy has already begun. We have a taste of it now. Through the Spirit, enlightening our hearts to the meaning of the cross and the confirmation of the resurrection. For when the Spirit enlightens our hearts, we, then, we can then call the crucifixion good, as in Good Friday. If we'd have been there that day, we'd have never called that Friday good, would we? As Jesus hung on the cross in excruciating pain, we'd have, we would have never used the word good, would we? It seems like a great contradiction. As Gordon Fee was famous for saying, a Messiah crucified is a contradiction in terms of the same category as fired ice. To the Jewish mind, Christ crucified is a stumbling block. A Messiah is to overwhelm the world with dramatic displays of strength and power. This is why the Jews simply cannot come to terms with a powerless, weak man on the cross as the Messiah. It's a great contradiction. To the Gentile mind, Christ crucified is utter foolishness. Even to the point of evoking rejoicing. Tacitus, a Roman historian, captured the Gentile view perfectly. He said, Christ crucified is a perverse, extravagant superstition. Especially in the first century, but also now, Christians were viewed and are viewed as helplessly anti-intellectual for following a common criminal who died by the lowest form of execution. It's utter ridiculousness to a Gentile. But when the Spirit convinces us, another word from last week's text, when the Spirit convinces us of the truth of the cross, we find the great reversal. The great reversal. This is the deeper magic from the beginning of time, as C.S. Lewis says in Narnia. What looks like the defeat of goodness by evil is actually the defeat of evil by goodness. And being overcome, Christ was overcoming. We'll meet that word next week. Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness and weakness of the cross, for in the foolishness and weakness of the cross, God has done what human wisdom and power could never do. God has come to us in weakness. God has come to us not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. God washes our feet that's the living God. It's the great reversal from the human perspective. On the cross that Friday, the foolishness of God accomplished what the wisdom of humanity never could. On the cross that Friday, the weakness of God accomplished what the power of humanity never could. 
at the cross, the Lamb of God really is taking away the sin of the world. So the cross is no longer a symbol of weeping, sorrow, and death. It's a symbol of eternal life. That's what the Spirit convinces us of, and that's why we wear crosses around our necks 2,000 years later. And that's why Good Friday is not Bad Friday, it's Good Friday. And we can have joy. And no one will take this joy from us. Our sorrow turns into joy, keeping in view the cross and the resurrection, keeping in view a God who dies for us, who dies for the world to bring us life. For the disciples that night, their sorrow turned into joy on Resurrection Sunday. For us, we have the Spirit with us and in us. And we have the Spirit-inspired New Testament texts which teach us the significance of the cross and resurrection. And we have the Spirit convincing us of the things that are to come. And we can have joy knowing Jesus is on the throne of the universe. And he's coming back again. Amen. We can live a defiant nevertheless as we, as we abide in Jesus. Dale Bruno says it this way. He says, everything decisive has now been answered. Death the meaning of life, the reality of God, the basic puzzles of human existence, the gift of the Spirit for living the authentic life, and everything else intertwined with Jesus' life, death, resurrection, Pentecost, and promised return. We most certainly can have joy down in our hearts. Well, Jesus now moves on to explain more reasons for joy. Verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus here again honors prayer this time in the context of joy. So we've discussed realized prayer several times throughout this discourse, so I'm going to keep this short. While Jesus is with them physically, they can ask him questions directly, but after he ascends to the Father, those first disciples will begin praying in his name, in his power, and in his authority. So that's how we pray. We pray in Jesus' name always ending with, your will be done. Just like Jesus prays in the garden, which is only in a few hours from now as well in our text. So Jesus here provides, again, assurance to realized prayer because he wants the church's joy to overflow. We have assurance 
with our prayers. Which is expected, or at least should be expected, for children of a good, good father. Nevertheless, God is a good, good father. He hears and answers our prayers. Well, next, Jesus gives one more reason for joy. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Well, these verses provide a bit of a transition from this text to next week's text where we'll talk about peace. But Jesus wants his disciples to know that we have access to the Father and that the Father loves us because we love Jesus and believe in him. You know, sometimes I I think that we mistakenly think that Jesus loves us more than the Father, that the Father only reluctantly puts up with us. It's not true. The Father loves us. The Father even likes us. He enjoys us. The word here for love is friendship love, phileo. You are my friends, the Father says, because you're friends with my Son and you believe Him. I like you, He says. I enjoy you. And that truth is meant to bring us great joy. Ray Steadman shared a practical way to remember this truth. He said this, there's a threefold technique in getting up in the morning. First, we stretch, and that gets the body going. Then we smile, and that puts the soul in the right attitude so that we don't start the day grumbling. And then we say, God loves me. Because, and that, uh, because that sets the spirit right. So that's how you start the day. Stretch, smile, and say, God loves me. (laughs) You could even say, God likes me. And then you can live with joy, joy, joy down in your heart. So three important points about joy from today's text. Jesus, through the Spirit, transforms our confusion and sorrow into joy. And that joy will not be taken from us. And the Spirit gives joy down in our hearts through realized prayer. He is a good, good Father. And the Spirit gives joy down in our hearts through knowing that God loves us, that God even likes us. Amen. Now receive this benediction. 
as you leave here and go out into the world, may the love of God draw you to him. May the joy of Jesus fill your souls. May the power of the Holy Spirit strengthen you in his service and remind you of the psalmist's words, sorrow may last for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Amen. Go in peace.